The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 9th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Time Magazine has announced the finalists for Person of the Year. I have made my peace with Person of the Year. It is a ploy. It's certainly a marketing ploy. And it's cloying. They'll never be brave enough to put a really evil person on the cover, although they did it with Hitler and the Ayatollah Khomeini. But now it's all about reassuring the reader. I mean, of course Osama bin Laden should have been the person of the year in 2001, but that would have been such a bummer. So it's cloying. And the winner, almost always male since 1927, four times a woman alone has appeared on the cover as person of the year. And then Earth won. So that's like Mother Earth. And then you won in 2006. Remember when you got Time Magazine? There was a piece of aluminum foil on the cover and it said you won. So if you're a woman, but it's almost always a boy. So if you're scoring at home, ploy, cloy, boy. But I'm cool with it. I used to dismiss it as this boy cloy toy to sell magazines. But now I work for a magazine and man, do they need help being sold. So here are the finalists. Let's go through them. I'll tell you who will win. Finals won the Ferguson protesters. Timely, but almost too timely. Also, the Garner protesters are better. Next, the Ebola caregivers. Maybe. They're good. Three, Putin. All right. So you got the villain thing. You got the evil thing. But he really does deserve it. I mean, he really affects a lot. The Winter Olympics in Sochi, the beginning of the year. The invasion of Crimea. lot to argue for him. Let's compare it to the next nominee, Taylor Swift. Come on, you got Putin looming out there and you're going to say, no, not him. We're going to nominate Taylor Swift. Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba. Ma, no wah. Tim Cook, nah, he's not Jobs, he won't work. Marsoud Barzani, the acting president of the Iraqi Kurdish region. This guy's not even the president of a country, he's the president of a region. Roger Goodell, nah, not evil enough, not exactly Putin-esque, but not really good, not Taylor Swift-esque. If you write your story like, oh, Goodell is powerful, you might hate him, haters gonna hate. You already got Taylor Swift for haters gonna hate. So, I say Putin wins. It'll be announced tomorrow on the Today Show. On our show today, I will spiel about the Gruber hearings. Do not believe conservative media. The Senate publication of the torture memo will not distract all media from Gruber. I'm going Gruber. But first, an inaugural inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the greatest rock pianist. There is no number two. And the new biography by a great biographer, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Lee Lewis. Great balls of fire, a whole lot of shaking going on and ducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, married and divorced and divorced and divorced and divorced, the killer. Jerry Lee Lewis is rock and roll. Well, he's a rock and roll icon and an iconoclast, and he's the subject of a new book, Jerry Lee Lewis, His Own Story by Rick Bragg. And the pairing of writer and subject is sublime because as a writer, well, what Richard Russo is to Northeast decay, what Cheever is to Westchester remove, Rick Bragg is to Southern Sin. Rick Bragg is the writer of this new biography. You can't write about Jerry Lee Lewis without writing about Sin. Hello, Rick. Hello. So if he weren't the killer, it's not just a nickname. I mean, if he didn't have a killer instinct, he might not have been anything, right? Jerry Lee told me something that stuck with me during the interviews. I asked him, do you have any regrets about any of this? And he said, other people just wish they could have done what I've done. 
And I think that sums him up. Yeah. He, he, he has no regret. And this is a life full of uh, hardships. Hardships as a young man, hardships as an old man, and certainly tragedy. So how would he kind of delineate the line between regrets and unfortunate things that happened to him? Well, I think that when we talk about death, and there's been an awful lot of death that swirled around Jerry Lee. You know, he lost two sons, lost a toddler son, and then a grown son. He buried two wives. been an awful lot of death around him. But when we talk about things that he committed, you know, when we talk about the times that he had to bust a man in the face with the butt end of a microphone stand because they, you know, yelled at him from the audience or challenged his stage, when we talk about his marriage to his 13-year-old cousin, Myra, when we talk about, you know, things that, that, that maybe other men might have thought, you know, maybe I should not have done that. That's not in his wheelhouse. He doesn't feel that he did anything wrong. Yeah, because if you take away those things that a perhaps rational or cautious person would say, I really shouldn't have done, maybe you also take away the part of him that dared to do things that no one else did. I mean, when he first began playing piano and the public stage, it wasn't just the style. It was everything about him that was shocking, right? Oh, Absolutely. And it was, I mean, when you use the word unique, usually you're, you're, you're misusing it. But in Jerry Lee's case, when he felt the exuberance and the joy of being up on stage, you know, he was prone to break some things. And he was, you know, one of the first, if not the first to do it, so that everyone who did it after him kind of looked like a, like a poser. Sure, Pete Townsend with a guitar. Who can't do it with a guitar? We're talking about immolation. Yeah. Or Jimi Hendrix with a guitar. We're talking about destroying a piano, lighting a piano on fire. Or the Beatles with their hair. How come Jerry Lee's hair in 1958, I think it was longer and shaggier than the Beatles were in 1964. Why didn't he get that kind of guff? Well, you know, he was, uh, it started out looking pretty good. You know, it started out looking pretty well quaffed. And then as soon as he went a little wild on the piano and the sweat began to drip, then it just came unbound. I mean, I, I would always think of Medusa. You know, and, you know, all that hair just come unbound. And, of course, when it came unbound, so did the women. <laughs> he also was a consummate showman. I mean, for all, we could talk about regrets. We could talk about things that he acknowledges he did wrong. I didn't read too many parts in the book where... He got resentful of the audience, or he's not one of these guys who feel like, oh, the audience wants to put me in one place. And he would often say to you, as a justification for anything, well, that's what people like. Like him going crazy and losing his cool. That's what people like. It seems to me that he always wanted to give him a great show. I think absolutely. You know, I asked him once, I said, why kick that stool back and send it, you know, rocketing across stage? And, and he says, well, the first time I didn't mean to do it. I was just going to ease it back. He hated the fact that he was bound by the piano, you know, that he couldn't stand up and, and, and move. And he said, so, you know, I was just going to, one day I just thought I'd, I'd reach back and push it back with my boot and a buckle on the boot caught the, the lip of the piano stool. And, of course, it went tumbling across the stage and the people went wild. And he thought, oh, so this is what they want. And yeah, after that, you know, he knew that he had to he had to kick that stool back every time. After that, you know, if he climbed the lid of the piano case, then he had to climb it every time. And I think the thing that maybe is different about Jerry Lee is 
he'd have probably climbed it anyway. How did he become so virtuosic on the piano? It does seem fortunate, and I, I don't know, can you explain what it was that made him so great at it just from a musical standpoint? Well, you know, you hear a lot about savants. You know, I've heard that all my life about, you know, people that can just look at an instrument and then find the song in it. And I do think that in Jerry Lee's case, when he was very small, he, his fingers did know where to go on that keyboard. But he had grown up in the Assembly of God Church listening to people beat the mortal hell out of the piano. You know, he had grown up listening to people sing in cotton fields and listening to old black men play the piano inside these beer joints standing, you know, by a window or standing by a door looking inside watching them play. And that's not some romantic image. That's actually the way Jerry Lee's childhood went. And, you know, putting all those styles together, but also just having this keen ear for a song the way that that other stylists like Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers, you know, had a keen ear for a song. You know, he he would be in the movies and he would hear Al Jolson do a song and he would he would literally pedal home on his bicycle, thinking the whole way, Well, I can do it better than that. And um I just think it was just that ear. You know, something I don't have, I can't play a radio. If there are such things as gifts, then maybe he's got a gift in that way. And the BB King nightclub in New York the other gosh, the other week he was he did something with his left hand that I'd never seen before. And I looked over at this accomplished piano player who was sitting next to me, and he just said, yeah, I tried three years to do that. And, and he's 79. Yeah, he's 79 years old. Oh. There was a spooky moment in the interviews where, you know, he's lying in bed, his back is he has crippling arthritis, he's got an infection and a broken leg that almost killed him. He's lying there in the gloom of his bedroom, and he raises his hands up to his face, we're talking about something else. And just all of a sudden, he raises his hands up to his face and says, still perfect. It, it was eerie. How did the interviews go? What was the structure of uh, talking to him and getting your source material? Well, when, when an interviewing process begins with him showing you the brush steel three fifty seven Magnum revolver he has under a pillow, mm-hmm. you probably figure they're not going to be dull. But, you know, mostly, he was gracious and... I had to ask him some hard things, and I had to ask him some awful things. We had to talk about a lot of death. One day he was talking about the death of his grown son, Junior, and how he had, at the funeral, the, the, you know, he lost a toddler son to a drowning, then lost a, a grown son, Junior, to a, you know, one-car accident. Nobody's fault, no drugs, no alcohol, just fate. You know, he told me how he got up to the coffin and raised the scrap of silk that they placed over the boy's face and kissed his boy goodbye and told me what he said to him. And, you know, these are not things I think any man wants to talk about. And uh, it's the only thing I left out of the book. It's the only thing that uh, people ask me, what did you leave out? Well, I left out what he said. But yeah, they were there. And then the other days we'd laugh out loud. You know, he'd talk about fighting his way into a beer joint in Iowa and having to fight his way out. He would... You know, he talked about stealing cars when he was 14. He talked about the great sewing machine caper where he basically had this scam selling sewing machines door-to-door where he would, like, tell the folks at the door, Congratulations, ma'am. The Atlas Sewing Machine Company of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has 
giving you a free sewing machine. All you have to do is pay the tax. So, I mean, but this is a guy clearly who understands his own persona, his own image. And on the one hand, you want to soak that up and revel in it and translate it to the reader. On the other hand, you want to get behind it. Did you ever feel that by the time you were done, he was a different person than from when you started around you? When we began, it was the rock and roll icon talking. And I think by the time we finished, it was still the rock and roll icon. He's never not going to be that. But there was also a wounded and ravaged and reflective old man. I'm not saying that, you know, in any way to, to make him, you know, to make Jerry Lee Lewis seem weak. Because when you talk about Jerry Lee Lewis getting old, you're talking about a wolf with its foot in a trap. You know, he ain't going to go gently. If you could have been there for any of the previous incarnations, including the, uh, the rock opera version of uh, Othello... <laughs> If you could be there for any of the previous incarnations of Jerry Lee Lewis, either as audience member or as interviewer, what would you have liked to have seen firsthand? Well, it, it wouldn't have been the Sun Records years, because I think there's enough tape on that. And certainly, I wish there was film, uh, you know, of the rock opera, because, I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis's Iago is, is, is just... I mean, that's just too beautiful to stand, you know? The... the if you ever get a chance to listen to the audio of that, it's just staggering how good it is. That's the old love, sir. I do believe it. She loves him. It's of great credit. I hate the more. Yet I am sure. You satisfy his wife every day of her life with love. But the thing I would have liked to have done, I'd like to have gone to Canada in the mid to late 50s with Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and Wanda Jackson and Marvin Rainwater and all these young people at the very birth of rock and roll. You know, sat in those cramped auditoriums in, you know, in Calgary. I think that would have been a window on a, on a slice of American music that might be too good to stand. Rick Bragg is the author of Jerry Lee Lewis, His Own Story. Thank you, Rick. Now, listen, this was a great pleasure. Come on over, baby. Hold on, shake it going on. Yes, I say, come on over, baby. And now the spiel. The Gruber gaff, the house gets a pass. Previously, we defined the Gruber gaff as an embarrassing statement that precisely expresses what a person thinks, just not in the way that he would prefer others to hear. This was the gaff, or among the gaffes, committed by economist John Gruber, consultant to Democrats in designing the Affordable Care Act. If you get a law which said healthy people are going to pay in, it made explicit the healthy people pay in and sick people get money, it would not have passed. Okay, just like the people, transparent, lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. You know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever. 
But basically, that was really, really critical to getting the thing to pass. That 2013 quote was called glib and unfortunate by an apologetic and actually kind of pathetic Professor Gruber before a House committee hearing today. How'd it go? Looks like we're going to need a bigger woodshed. The Affordable Care Act was passed as a pack of lies on a foundation of deception. That was Tom Rice, Republican of South Carolina. The fact that hubris could be considered a previously existing condition seemed not to factor into the strategy of most Republicans on the panel who asked question after question designed to get Gruber to disclose how much he was paid to help craft the law. Questioning him here is Jim Jordan of Ohio. By the way, Mr. Gruber, back to the question we had a little discussion on earlier. How much were you paid, you and your institution, by the federal taxpayer and by the state taxpayer regarding your lectures on Obamacare? I have disclosed for the committee, as I understand from my counsel, I'm required federal payment. I'm not asking what you disclose. I'm asking you a question. Give me a dollar amount. How much were you paid? The American taxpayer would like to know how much they paid you to deceive them and then got made fun of by the very dollars that they paid you to make fun of them. And they'd like to know that. So how much were you paid? As I said, the committee can take that up with my counsel. Gruber never changed his answer. They never stopped asking the question. In medicine, that would not be considered outcome-oriented. But you can see why, politically, the Republicans were pounding Gruber. He was big game. He was connected directly to this loathed piece of legislation, as acknowledged by the president himself. Uh, You've already drawn some of the brightest minds from uh, academia and policy circles. Uh, Many of them I've stolen ideas from liberally. Uh, people ranging from Robert Gordon to Austin Goolsby, John Gruber. For the record, I do think that Gruber told the truth, not as he was trying to say, spoke out of his hat about something he didn't know about, that he was just offering conjecture in a subject for which he was unqualified to opine. In fact, you could look at this entire hearing today as the flaying of a man who argued in the worst possible way that it is important to frame your worst possible arguments in the best possible way. Gruber was exactly correct in that to get this law passed, the most uncomfortable truths were elided, that the numbers were massaged by such methods as putting your thumb on the scale of the Congressional Budget Office. Of course, dear some Republicans, just knowing what the Congressional Budget Office is, is a pretty damning status. How many non-politicians know what CBO is? I know, I know. Do I get Secret Service protection? Politicians, uh, human beings, will always present their cases in the least bad way, perhaps even failing to mention the worst aspects of their plan and occasionally outright misstating things. In the run-up to the Iraq War, White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card said, quote, from a marketing point of view, you don't introduce new products in August. This happens to be an honest and correct explanation of why the Bush White House waited until September to press for public support of its Iraq policy. To his critics, Andrew Card was guilty of perfidy and deceit. John Gruber, to his critics, is the architect of one great lie. To his defenders on the panel today, well, they defended the law. They didn't defend Gruber. They pointed out that the law is helping millions of Americans, no matter how it was crafted. The Republicans strafed Gruber with endless rounds of flack. The Democrats kept their guns holstered and their jaws slack. Here's Eleanor Holmes Norton. So are you doing the kinds of of, uh, of customer... Uh, Customer, um, um, uh, that, that, that you can quantify, uh, customer experience so that, that you can quantify as to what the experience has been so you'll be able to say 
that at the end of this period? We, we are. It's, it's a little early. Thank you, F. Lee Bailey. This hearing, on a day when the Senate released a scathing report on the CIA and torture, was a useful ceremonial bloodletting. It may be nothing more than that. It remains to be seen if outrage over Gruber's comments can be leveraged into anything tangible to dismantle Obamacare. But as a catharsis, not to mention fodder for future political ads, maybe high fives over a zinger one-upsmanship, the dissection of the cadaver of Jonathan Gruber must be seen as catharsis. In fact, it reminded me of how villages of yore would treat a scapegoat. As described by Reverend Kathleen Rollins of Rocky River, Ohio, this was from the ESPN documentary Catching Hell. On the Day of Atonement, a goat was chosen. The priest then would take the goat into the temple, would pray over the goat, lay his hands on the goat, and that was to confer the sins of the people onto that animal. And then the animal was led out of town, and the people uh, of the community would then jeer. Every single thing they promised was a lie. And insult and throw their sins onto the goat. Which are you apologizing for? Because you said it or because you meant it? And then they would lead the goat outside the city, shut the gates so that the goat could never again return to the fold. Now here's an opportunity for you to come clean. Some stories say the goat is thrown over a cliff, thereby expunging the sins of the people. Not so different from the treatment Gruber got, except for the fact that the poor goat didn't do anything wrong. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is fraught with half-truths and deception. The so-called glibness that has been referenced today by Claire Tennisketter, just intern, has direct consequences for real American people. If you like Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, you can keep Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers may be executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and that may be good political theater, but it will not help a single American get health insurance. It will not help a single person get well. It will not help a single person get the care they need. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email. Subscribe to it at slate.com slash gist email. Sign up for the app Yo and go to podcast. We'll tell you when the show posts. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. Night before last, I was at the Kennedy Center Honors, where they honored uh, Tom Hanks, famously Forrest Gump, the ultimate in successful stupid man. Are you stupid? Well, I'm not, and I think I could prove it by pointing out that Forrest Gump was more of a holy fool than technically stupid. If you excuse the expression, he was a parable of sorts, with Gump standing in for the innocence of America itself. I'll just throw that out there. Of course, I am not a film scholar. I'm just a humble economist at MIT. Does MIT employ stupid people? Not to my knowledge. Okay, I'm going to yell back the remainder of my time. Thanks for listening. Great balls of fire!